Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. I'm your host, Kelly Smith, and this week on Policy, Guns and Money, we hear from ICPIC's Fergus Ryan and Elise Thomas on censorship and the coronavirus, and Peter Jennings talks to Israeli journalist and TV personality Ehad Yari. But first, ASPI's Brendan Nicholson speaks to Dr. Ahmed Al-Dawoudi, the legal advisor for Islamic law with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Welcome to ASPI. Now, you're a specialist, probably one of a limited number of specialists in uh, international law from both the points of view of Islamic law and international humanitarian law. How do the two relate? Do they have a lot in common? Uh, absolutely, yes. The The two bodies of law share the common uh, humanitarian principles that relates to the protection of civilians and civilian objects. And we see in the deliberations of the classical Islamic jurists uh, a rich deliberation and ongoing negotiation between uh, the humanitarian concerns and at the same time also the pragmatic imperatives of winning the war. So you see that this is a parallel between the two legal systems. In this case, both of them have the objective of bringing humanity into armed conflicts. How old is Islamic law? It goes back, what, as far as the 7th century? Yeah, Islamic law goes back to the emergence uh, of Islam. Uh, basically, when we speak about the um, the Islamic law of armed conflict, it dates back to the first battle in early Islamic history, which was in March 624. Right. Mm-hmm. Who was that between? It was between the Muslims and the uh, the tribe of Quraysh. Right. Which took place in a place called now Medina in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Was Islamic law seen as bringing a, a, a civilizing influence to warfare at that stage? Islamic law, when it started in this particular area, was aiming at regulating the conduct of Muslims in armed conflicts because it relates directly to human lives, which is the ultimate objective of Islamic law is uh, the protection of human lives. So this is why they wanted to make sure that you protect human lives unless in case of military necessity. In recent history, we've seen some appalling atrocities that have been attributed to an interpretation of Islamic law and and the Quran. Mm -hmm. Now, that clearly is is in divergence to the intentions of Islamic law. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. But this would be also the case with all either major religions, but also with some other legal systems where uh, some governments or some regimes would interpret the law in different ways. And even when you see convicted uh, war criminals, they do not still see themselves as war criminals and they see themselves as freedom fighters and even by some of their peoples, they still see them as their heroes, although they are convicted in international criminal courts as war criminals. So 
divergent interpretations is a human characteristic, but we have no option but to counter uh, these uh, these di divergent interpretations with the with the proper ones and bringing these interpretations into sanity and humanity. The war, the world is involved in a number of violent localized wars at present and the red cross has an absolutely crucial role to play in trying to protect the weak and innocent in those situations to what extent can islamic law help in terms of negotiating safe passage for red cross staff mm -hmm. this is an excellent question and relates particularly to certain war situations where islamic law is used as source of reference by certain arm carriers. Luckily, in classical Islamic law, there is fully developed systems and doctrines related to uh, safe passage, or what's called aman or safe conduct and quarter, where if non-combatant enemy citizens uh, or non-combatants wanted to enter the territories of a Muslim majority state, they have free access, they have protection, and they have certain rights and duties, and they cannot be harmed. It's more or less equivalent to the modern visa system. And by the way, this is this system even predates the emergence of Islam. It was a pre-Islamic tradition, and it was respected by the Muslims, and it is in, included in the Islamic legal system, and also it has its basis even in the Holy Quran. And this is why it's a very effective system and it gives uh, security guarantee to many organizations working in the battlefield right now. And this could save many of people's lives. But first of all, we have to know about this. So in order to engage with Muslim uh, interlocutors who use Islamic law as their source of reference. So it is a two-way learning process because also Muslims need to educate themselves about these classical Islamic legal rulings, but also the international society needs to know about this to avoid misconceptions and to avoid jeopardizing the lives of individuals, but also with humanitarian organizations. Even in countries that are fairly unsophisticated in terms of education, do you find that there's an acceptance, in Muslim countries, do you find that there's an acceptance of Islamic law and, and, the, and the humanitarian requirements it brings? Islamic, Islamic law or Islam in general is an inevitable part of the culture and tradition and ways of lives of hundreds of millions of people around the world. But sometimes there is a degree of confusion between what is Islamic and what is cultural. And depending on which part of the Muslim world, this could be influenced by some cultural practices related to other civilizations and cultures related to which part of the world they come from. But yes, Islam is an important source of influence because it relates to the individual's ways of lives of people. and. The, the great thing about Islam is that it is a self-imposed system. It is Muslims who are impose it on themselves and are willing to abide by this. They put certain rules on themselves related to even food, to clothes, to how do you engage with others. So 
we need a lot of education on this because Islam could be a powerful source of bringing humanity and civilization into our into our world. Now there have been successful negotiations and discussions and uh, with the Taliban in terms of um, securing the safety of people like diplomats and Red Cross personnel and in the Philippines. Can you explain a little about that and how it works? Yes, uh, as you said, in these specific cases where they respect Islam and Islamic law and Islamic traditions, uh, the, the discussion with many international organizations, whether it is the ICRC or other international organizations, is successful because you see common values. You see as people as not as long as they are not engaging in hostilities, they are coming to do humanitarian work, they should be actually according to Islamic uh, values and principles, they should be appreciated and you should be thanked, let alone protected. So this is why it is part of the cultural, traditional, Islamic legal norms that if anyone uh, that is uh, not hostile and they are in your territory, so they have the right to protection as guests. And is this what you described earlier as Aman? Yes, it is uh, it's a system called Aman. It literally means protection, but if you are speaking about it, the case of armed conflict, it refers to safe passage or safe conduct, but also quarter for enemy combatants. If civilian want, want from an enemy state wanted to enter Muslim territories for any uh, reason, whether for education or conducting trade or visiting, visiting a family or for diplomatic purposes, so they have the right to access to the Muslim territories and they have certain rights and privileges. Uh, exemption, exemption of ta tax, for example, if they live for a certain period of time, uh, they can take any Muslim to court if they, uh, if they are wrong during their stay. So it's more or less similar to the visa rights now. Uh, but also for diplomats, they have this protection and even it predates Islam and also humanitarian organization or, or health care or a reporter, they fall into this category. And this is why uh, we find in many uh, communities they give protection uh, to these uh, categories. Of course, the, when there is violations, like in any uh, in any other uh, situation, this is because of lack of knowledge about this. Well, just to finish off, just in practical terms, is the the application and the, and the greater understanding of Islamic law through the Red Cross, saving lives already? It is. It, from even from a pure pragmatic consideration, you cannot work in a context where you don't know its culture and uh, because when you understand it, you are in a better position to take at least to take informed decisions. But even from a security perspective, and this is based on one of the doctrines of the ICRC, Doctrine 16, which means acceptance, you cannot get acceptance without engaging with other cultures on their own source of reference. This gives respect to them, and this shows the, common, the commonality that the ICRC shares with other cultures and civilizations, whether you are speaking about Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and others, because these values that are enshrined in international humanitarian law are universal, I would say. Dr. Aldawari, thank you very much for giving us the time. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
Questions on state censorship have been prominent in the public discussion around the coronavirus. Here's Fergus and Elise giving us some insight. Fergus, you've been keeping an eye on what's been happening around um, COVID-19 and sort of the information that is coming out about that on Chinese social media. What have you seen? What I've seen is um, really quite remarkable. Towards the end of January, there was a brief period where we saw a type of internet in China that we haven't seen for at least seven years. And what I mean by that is uh, we saw censorship lifted and we saw a lot of muckraking uh, journalism take place uh, that really punched some holes in the official narrative. Um, and so we saw for a brief period of time um, a moment of free speech on online in China. And so I know that some of those journalists have since disappeared. Um, how do you think that's playing into um, the sense of public trust from, from the Chinese public um, in terms of what they're hearing from authorities, the disappearance of those journalists, um, the return to some extent of the, the censorship, which briefly lifted there? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I think that for that brief period of time, the Chinese public was able to get a glimpse of a different uh, narrative and a different perspective on the epidemic. But inevitably, the censorship and propaganda apparatus in China uh, re-corrected. They decided on um, an official narrative and censorship has, has since come back uh, in force. The government has increased their efforts to send uh, over 300 journalists to the area to paint a rosier picture of um, the government's efforts to do something about the crisis. And why do you think there was that kind of gap in, in enforcement, in censorship, in propaganda between the start of the outbreak um, and to, to sort of now where it's gearing back up again? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, in a way, I can only really guess as to what the answer is. One theory is that um, many of the censors were uh, just not at work because, of course, this um, whole crisis has um, happened during uh, the Lunar New Year. And uh, that's a time when um, most Chinese people go back to their hometowns and that includes the censors. So one um, theory is that they just simply weren't at work to do the job of censoring. But another theory is that this was a breaking news event and the system is set up to filter out sensitive words and topics that uh, the authorities in Beijing are very aware of. So you've got Tibet, you've got Tiananmen, Taiwan, Xi Jinping, etc. Nobody knew that Dr. Li Wenliang would be someone that they would want to censor at that time. And so when you have something that's new um, taking place like this, it does take time for the censorship apparatus to sort of scramble back into place. And so what do you think the, um, the effect of that experience, that kind of roller coaster of having a brief moment of more free speech and now having that weight come back down on them, do you think that's affected how people in China are seeing the, the, the government's reaction to the crisis? I do. I want to be careful not to overstate it, but this particular crisis, unlike the Wenchuan earthquake or the Tianjin explosion a few years ago or the uh, uh, Wenzhou train crash, this particular crisis is different because 
unlike in those um, events, everyone is implicated in this story. Everyone uh, knows someone who is affected by it and uh, Chinese people all throughout, throughout the country um, are having to take steps to avoid COVID-19. So in those situations, the majority of the Chinese population were spectators watching this crisis unfold with uh, a small proportion of the population affected. But this time, everyone is involved. And so everyone's attention um, has been on trying to find out what is the truth, what is actually happening here. And so I think that many people, particularly young people, uh, this was probably their first time to see a crack in the system and to see actual genuine muckraking, hard-hitting journalism take place and free speech flourish, albeit uh, momentarily online. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this situation is the way in which the Chinese government has, over a period of decades, built up this censorship, this uh, censorship and information control regime, with the goal of increasing trust in the government, with the goal of building up support for the government. And we see under this situation of pressure that that information control system is actually degrading trust in the government because people don't trust the information they're getting from authorities to necessarily be a complete picture of what is actually happening on the ground. Yeah, I, that's absolutely right. And um, the result of that is it creates a situation where it's the perfect breeding ground for rumours to spread. But of course, you know, the Chinese population is not a monolith and um, there are different ways that people see this situation. But you can sort of broadly um, divide people into a couple of groups. And one is a group that just blindly accepts anything that the government does say through official state media outlets. But then there are also people who are perhaps, you know, the the opposite of that, who just refuse to trust the government whatsoever. And both of those types of uh, ways of thinking about the situation isn't particularly helpful when there's a, a major public health crisis unfolding. And I think that the difficult thing about um, a, a novel epidemic like this is that we are learning about things in real time. So things that might actually have been thought to be true at the time, for example, that it wasn't possible to have human to human transmission, we later find out that in fact it is possible. Um, and there's a and you know what has actually happened there is that the state of scientific knowledge has improved, but there may be a perception that that was actually initially a lie that has now come out. Um, and so you have that added layer of complication of finding out in real time what the facts are on top of sort of the, the issue of um, politicised information control. Well, that's right. And that is complicated enough. Uh, but, and when you add on to that the way the system is set up in China, there is simply a fundamental lack of trust in the information that people are getting. The system is really lacking in flexibility and the incentive structure is completely um, backwards. And what I mean by that is that in the very early uh, days of this epidemic, um, there was a crucial um, period of time that was lost when these doctors who were just using WeChat, which is uh, similar to WhatsApp, to chat with each other and talk about this new phenomenon that they didn't fully understand, um, but they were talking as professionals, as peers about it. And then 
their conversation was screen. There were screenshots of that conversation that then started to spread. They were reprimanded by local police, and then there was a full twenty-day delay between them being reprimanded and the public being told that there was human-to-human transmission. So, as as you're saying, you know, this is a really complicated uh, situation that involves um, a lot of new science biology, research that needs to be done, and it's only made more complicated by this distorted incentive structure that um, exists in the Chinese censorship and propaganda apparatus. Yeah, and I think that sort of works all the way along the chain. So those distorted incentives are distorting the information environment, not only for the Chinese public, but also for the Chinese government, um, in that there's a, a real lack of a real lack of trust in in the numbers around sort of the the numbers of infections and numbers of deaths coming out of China, and I I think um, partially that is potentially to do with some spin by the Chinese government, but I don't necessarily think that they themselves have a complete picture because you'd think that people on the ground have incentives to not want to bring bad news to the authorities. So I've heard stories, I'm sure you have heard stories as well, of people um, presenting themselves to hospitals thinking they might have coronavirus and wanting to be tested and being sent away without being tested or people suspected of having coronavirus who died before they were diagnosed. Um, and those potentially are, you know, the, the numbers could be completely different from what we believe that they are. Yeah, and I mean, one of the saddest things uh, to witness as this was unfolding on Chinese social media were a lot of these um, victims of the virus um, or family members uh, of people who had fallen sick, who took to platforms like Weibo uh, to to plead with the government and with um, with ho- local hospitals that they were not getting uh, the appropriate care that they thought they should be getting, and um, unfortunately, while a lot of these people did get sympathy from many people online, they were also quite viciously attacked by others who, following the government line, uh, assumed that these people were simply spreading rumours. Listening to everything you've said, the point that really comes out to me is the the importance of trust in crises mm. and the importance of government communication being transparent, being honest, being reliable um, when there is a, a rapid onset crisis like this. And I looked at the example of the Australian bushfires when so many Australians were able to turn to local media, particularly to their local ABC radio channels and local ABC television channels um, for the most reliable information possible given given the speed with with, with which that crisis also moved um, and it's a it's quite a stark comparison when you look at what is happening in China now and sort of the the, the comparison between the state broadcasters if you will mm-hmm. um, the the degree of trust that the Australian state broadcaster has been able to build up over decades versus the lack of trust in the official narrative coming out of the the state media in China yeah absolutely thanks Elise thanks Fergus Ehad Yari is an Israel-based fellow of the Washington Institute and an award-winning journalist and Middle East commentator. Here he is in conversation with Aspie's Executive Director, Peter Jennings. Well, welcome to Aspie's podcast, Policy, Guns and Money. I'm Peter Jennings and I'm speaking to Ehud Yari here, a long-term Israeli commentator on defence and security issues 
commentator for Israel's Channel 2 television uh, and a former associate editor of the Jerusalem Post. Ehud, it's great to see you back in Australia. My pleasure. Welcome. Thank you. Now, we've only got uh, 10 or 12 minutes, so I wanted to do a quick tour of the uh, Middle East region with you. Uh, always many issues to talk about, but let's um, let's start with Israel's domestic political situation. Uh, two elections uh, in quick succession and a third one uh, not too far away. Can you sketch out for uh, our audience what you think is happening in terms of Israeli domestic politics and where is it going to head in 2020? Yes, uh, Israel is a split almost right in the middle between a center-left camp and a center-right camp. Uh, and there is a sort of a tie with all the powers indicating again and again and again that uh, you may be able to shift two or three seats in our parliament, the Knesset, out of 120. None of the blocs seems to have any chance of getting the majority of 61 in order to form a coalition. And the Grand Coalition, National Unity combination between the two leading parties, Blue and White and Likud, uh, doesn't seem possible because uh, the center-left uh, bl uh, bloc uh, refuses to serve either under or with Mr. Netanyahu, mm. who is about to stand trial for bribery and breach of trust. This is why what we have now is something that we never had before in Israel. You have an election campaign, and we are about 20 days from uh, uh, ballot day, and there is no campaign. The ex-chief of staff, who is the contender for succession of Bibi, the leader of Blue and White, General uh, Gantz, he does everything he can in order to shy away from the microphones, mm -hmm. not be seen on television, not make uh, speeches in rallies, etc. So it's a very silent, quiet campaign in which the polls don't, do not really move. And you are asking yourself whether we are going to end up come uh, March 3rd uh, with uh, uh, no government again mm. and the need to go for a fourth round, God forbid, uh, of elections. It's a total stalemate. That's uh, that's fascinating. And, and of course, it comes down then to the post-election capacity of the leaders to try to negotiate um, a coalition outcome. Do you think this um, election is going to produce anything different to what we've seen the last time around? The um, main question is uh, what would be the level of participation in the elections? If uh, the voters will get out, or rather, if Bibi can get the vote out, then he may stand a chance. Slight, but he may stand a chance. Otherwise, it, the main question would be whether there will be some defections from the right-wing bloc, Bibi's bloc, uh, to the center-left. Uh, For example, the ultra-Orthodox uh, parties, mm -hmm that cannot afford not to be in government because they have to provide certain uh, benefits and services to their own uh, uh, electorate. Right. That would change the map. It didn't happen so far. Everybody's swearing that they are not going to switch camp, but you never know. Yes. Is this the uh, end game for uh, Bibi? He's been a towering figure in Israeli politics for years. Bibi has been the longest-serving Israeli prime minister, and I think you have general appreciation of his qualities as a statesman. 
he has done a lot, both in terms of uh, modernizing uh, and giving a major boost to Israeli economy, mm-hmm. and also in building alliances and uh, cooperation with many countries that Israel n- never dealt with before, including many of the uh, Sunni Arab uh, countries. However, Bibi is uh, perceived now by many in the elect- electorate, including many of his own camp, uh, as a divisive figure who is mounting an attack on the judicial system because they are putting him on trial, mm-hmm. who's mounting attacks on the media, the police, almost everything which uh, constitutes the, the basis of our democracy. Mm-hmm. And many people will not forgive him for that, although they think that he was a very good prime minister. Yes, yes. So I'm afraid that what we see now is the exit, the departure of Bibi. And the question is how long it takes and how nasty it becomes. These um, political stories almost never end well, it seems to me. I heard it's sort of inherent in the nature of politics that ultimately a uh, few people pick their own time. Uh, and uh, it looks like Bibi is sort of going down swinging, but, you know, it's hard to see how he can craft a path for himself that um, returns things back to the, the good old days, you might he's, say. He's a very impressive fighter. Yes. He's fighting. He's going to Washington and gets the deal of the century from Trump exactly at the right moment for the elections. Then he flies from Washington to Moscow and bring a poor Israeli girl who was sentenced to nine years uh, in uh, in prison because they caught she was on a connection from India to Israel because they had nine grams she had nine grams of hashish uh, in her bag and he brings her back mm. on his own plane mm. and then he goes and have the first ever public meeting with the president of Sudan whose whose uh, representative in the Arab League just voted a day a day uh, before against the Trump plan and denouncing Israel etc 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 so he's a bag full of tricks. Yeah. But he doesn't play by the book. So everything goes with Bibi. And you never know at the end of the day how the electorate will react to that, whether they will be more impressed with his persistence and stamina and, 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 and determination, or whether, as many uh, would tell you, they say enough is enough, his time is up, and let's take somebody else even though we are not sure that it's a good pair of hands on the wheel, like this General Gantz, who is, at the end of the day, he will forgive me for saying that, a very pale figure, not somebody who has ideas, not somebody who's uh, engaged in in an intellectual debate Mm. about almost anything. And his only card, the only card he's playing to the extent he's playing in these elections, is to say, I am not Bibi. I'm a decent guy. Yes, yes. Let's talk about the uh, the deal of the century. Um, another politician with a great bag of tricks, Donald Trump, delivered this um, supposed uh, peace proposal. What's your uh, take on that? Um, I mean, my my read is, uh, frankly, this doesn't look like it's got many legs to stand on in terms of real potential to lead to a peace outcome. But I'd be interested to hear your view. Well, I would say, frankly that uh, I have reason to suspect that uh, Bibi not only influenced the 100 pages of the, uh, Trump's pl- of the Trump plan, 
but probably penned some of it himself. Uh, it's a non-starter in terms of the offer it makes. It uh, constitutes a major departure from all the tenets of the peace process over uh, the years since Oslo in uh, 93. However, what people tend to miss is what was the purpose. The purpose was not to get a dialogue between Israel and the Palestinians based on this plan, which grants the Palestinians 70% of the territory, only some unimportant parts of Jerusalem, after four years and after they disarmed Hamas in Gaza, how exactly do they do that, etc. The, the purpose of the plan was to create a platform for open public negotiations between Israel and the Arab states, mainly the Gulfis, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco. Thus, lifting the growing cooperation uh, and, and relationships between Israel and the Arab states up to the public eye, and thereby allowing or giving a momentum to further development of Israeli-Arab rapprochement. Trump and his people had a reason to believe that the Gulf states and Egyptians mainly uh, will play along. They will say, well, we don't like the plan as it is, but there is something to talk about. Mm -hmm. And for a fact, they have indicated that they, the Gulf states, that they were willing to foot the $50 billion economic uh, uh, program for building a Palestinian uh, economy. I can tell you, uh, Peter, that until the last moment, they were saying to the Palestinians that they are, were not going to uh, uh, subscribe to the Palestinian stand. And only in the last hour, during the, the Arab foreign minister's um, meeting in Cairo on Saturday, uh, did they change their mind, mainly because of the vehement opposition to the plan by Iran and Turkey, the two non-Arab powers were stepping in to the ruins of the Arab world, taking advantage of the collapse of the major implosion of Arabism. So they changed their mind, but it's not the end of the day. Uh, and I think the Americans, and if Bibi stays in power, certainly Bibi, they will keep trying to get negotiations going, even if the Palestinians are absent. That's fascinating. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money. I'm talking to Ehud Yari, a well-known uh, commentator on Israeli and Middle Eastern security issues. Ehud, I'd like to um, end by uh, asking you about Iran. Quite remarkable um, scenes over the last few months with the um, assassination of uh, the Quds Force commander, Soleimani, then the conflict that didn't happen. Um, what's your um, interpretation of um, how we should be thinking about these events and how do you think this is going to play out into the rest of 2020? I think that the people in the West generally, and if I may say so in Australia too, do not have uh, appreciation for the meaning of the elimination of Soleimani. I am comparing the assassination of uh, Soleimani to the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, uh, the guy who uh, was the architect of Hitler's plan to destroy European Jewry. He was killed in 42 by the Czech underground in Prague. 
It's true that after uh, the uh, removal of uh, Heydrich, the final solution, the destruction of European Jewry went ahead. But I'm not sure that after the uh, elimination of Soleimani, the grand plan of Soleimani continues. Soleimani was the only guy ever to present a comprehensive, sensible strategy of how gradually to get to the point when you, where you can eradicate the state of Israel. None of the Arab leaders before, for a century, ever presented a viable strategy. Soleimani did. It was very costly for Iran. There were people opposing his moves in the Fertile Crescent, uh, etc. And the question now is whether uh, the, the Soleimani outline will proceed without him. I think the main indication would be in the next, uh, in the coming uh, elections to the Iranian parliament, the Madlis. If, as it seems, the radicals are determined uh, to monopolize power in the new Iranian parliament, that would probably mean to me that they intend to follow in the footsteps of Slibani. Otherwise, we will start seeing reduction of investment in whatever Soleimani was engaged uh, with. I'll give you an example. At the moment, we have just 400 Iranian officers, military advisors in Syria. The numbers were much higher. They were reduced because of the Israeli continuous air campaign to destroy Iranian uh, assets in Syria. Are the Iranians going to maintain this presence? Are they going to keep on creeping into Syria, trying to establish their their own war machine. And here comes another player by the name of Vladimir Putin. Once they finish uh, taking the Idlib uh, governorate, which will happen, I don't think the Turks will be able for long to prevent it. Then Putin will ask himself, and it's already discussed, was discussed between him and Bibi and between the Kremlin and the Americans and some European powers. What does he need the Iranians in Syria for? As long as there is fighting on the ground, he needs their militiamen because the Russians don't have ground troops. But once he's there and once Syria west of the Euphrates River is liberated, quote unquote, uh, he needs some, somebody to take upon himself uh, reconstruction of Syria, because Syria is not there anymore, just on the map. And for that, uh, European Union, Americans, other may say to Putin, well, the price is get the Iranians out. Uh, we are not there, but it's already in the air. And the Iranians are well aware, aware of it. So I would end by saying that uh, we are in a forest of question marks. Yes in terms of whether Iran going to stay the course or not. Just quickly, do you think the Iranians might read Trump's handling of the, the post-assassination situation as, as an indicator to them that as long as they don't kill Americans, they, they basically have a free hand? Is, is that the right way to read this if, if you were looking at the American situation? Possibly, but it didn't deter them from mounting a very precise 
missile attack on the airbase of Ain al-Assad in Iraq. And generally, I think that the main battle in the Middle East now is over Baghdad. Mm. That's the main battle. And I think the, the future of the Middle East for the next few years is going to be decided in Baghdad. That is, who has more influence uh, over the new Iraqi government, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Iran. Or, more likely, what is the ratio of a sharing, of a power-sharing formula which may be created uh, in Iraq. If the Iranians manage to get the uh, 5,400 American soldiers uh, out of Iraq, and they turn Iraq, in spite of the wishes of the local Shiites, into sort of an extension of Iran, an Iranian uh, province that is sovereign by name only, uh, then it changes the whole map of the Middle East. Then you have Jordan in trouble, you have a land corridor from Iran all the way to the Mediterranean linking up with Hezbollah, Golan Heights, the Israeli frontier. The Gulf states are in a different situation. That's a new ballgame. My advice always to my countrymen is watch Iraq. It's a, we don't have a border with Iraq, but we have to watch Iraq because this is where the real g- game is taking place. As always, a forest of question marks. Sahil, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on Policy, Guns and Money. Thank you for having me, Peter. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We are always keen to receive your feedback. Tweet us at aspie underscore org. We will return in two weeks.